Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Humanity has a problem. Would you agree? That means we have a problem because we are humanity. The writer here in Hebrews is addressing that problem. And really the whole book of Hebrews, the whole Bible is addressing the problem. It's really simple. The scripture's pretty plain. It's, it's addressing the problem and it's going to provide a solution. It's, re- it's really when you boil it right down to it, all 66 books are highlighting the problem and glorifying in the solution and saying there is a solution to this. But specifically here in Hebrews, the writer is writing to a, a Hebrew, a Jewish audience, and he's trying to move them from their way of thinking under the current system of law that they're in to something different because of this problem. So what's the problem? Well, Before we kind of define the problem, which is pretty clear and simple, let's talk a little bit about this, the background here. So these are Hebrews. They believe in God. They they believe that God is eternal. They believe God has created all things. I assume that if you're here this morning, most of you, if not all of you, probably believe that, that God has created all things. He's eternal. He's existed forever. He's the giver of life, right? So what's the problem? Well, the challenge here, and I don't want to say this is a problem, but this is part of the challenge, is that God is good. In fact, I would go so far as to say that God is perfect. He is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly good, perfectly. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means, but, but see, there's a problem there, a challenge for us. It's a problem for us because, see, to, to be in a right relationship with God, He wants us to be perfect, and we're not. And so what's the problem? The problem is sin. We have sin. They had sin then. There's been sin in the world ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, ever since they decided that they could go their own way and they didn't need to trust God and they stepped out from underneath his hand and they said, no, we will do it our own way. And for now, for thousands of years, we've been trying to do it our own way. We see it in the world now. There's multiple, multiple different worldviews to do it your own way. But God says, no, there's only one way. And so really what the author is going to say here is he's trying to to help them get back to this understanding of what God is doing. But but the problem gets a little bit more complicated. And I want to bring some clarity to the problem. So every one of us is sinful. Every one of us. We have sin. So that's that's the problem. But I would say maybe even a bigger problem is, is that we are helpless to do anything about that problem. Now, I want that to sink in for a second. You can't fix that problem. You can do something to try and fix the problem. Think think about this. I have a lot of problems in my life. I have a lot of challenges. And there are certain things that I can do to fix those challenges. I can get help. I, I, I I need some things done at the house. I can ask somebody to help me. If I need to pick this up, I can ask somebody to help me pick this up. This week, we rebuilt the kitchen in the barn. Now, this has been, we've been to do this for, I don't know, four or five years, six years, and John Woolwine had to say something last Saturday. Hey, let's, let's, what about rebuilding the kitchen? We have like six days before VBS, John. 
yeah, but that'd be nice. And I was dumb enough to say, okay. And only by God's grace, multiple men came out. We had an incredible week. We were sweating, working from morning till night, working, multiple people came, and we got it done just yesterday, right? I can, I can fix those things because I can ask for help. But see, the problem with sin is I'm, I'm helpless to fix my problem. I'm incapable. You're incapable of fixing your problem of sin, the consequence of sin. You're just incapable. We're powerless over it. I mean, we can, we can be good for a short time. We can, we can try and be morally right and do these things. But ultimately, we still have sin. So it's a twofold problem. One, we have it. And the other one is that we can't fix it. The author of Hebrews understands that the people he's writing to have that same problem we do. And so he's, he's beginning to unpack this whole thing about explaining what he, he's trying to get them to understand. And we're going to see how he takes them all the way from the beginning of the book. And really, I would argue that, that what we're talking about right now in Hebrews and next week and maybe the week after is the heart of the book. It's the heart of this letter because, because it, it's really resting here, the thrust of what he's trying to say. He's been building up to this point what he's getting ready to tell these people because I will tell you that what he's trying to tell these people is going to be a hard nut for them to swallow. And so he's been preparing them early in his letter to get to this point. And then he's going to come back around and talk more about it, and he's going to wrap it up in the rest of the letter. But really, this is, the, I believe, the heart of the letter. And so he's beginning to tell them. And, and so what does he start by kind of saying? He says, in fact, chapter 1, he says that God sent his son into the world, into this, to, to, to help fix the problem, to help do this. That's kind of where he starts in, in the book of Hebrews. And he says he's going to send his, his, his son into the world to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We can't do it for ourselves. And so he's going to send his son to do it. And what is that? He's going to atone for our sins. He's going to take the penalty for our sins. He's going to get crucified and, and take our place on the cross. And, and he doesn't unpack all of that, but that's, that's kind of what he's already, that's what Jesus has done. And, and now, but, but the writer, remember, he's writing to Hebrews, and so they're, they're steeped in the law, they're steeped in the tradition of the sacrificial system. And so he's beginning a process of talking them and moving them away from that system. And so the first thing he's established is that God is doing something for you. He's just letting them know God has sent his son for us. And so that's where he starts. And then what does he go on to then say? He says, well, there's, that Jesus is, is greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels because they, they really esteemed Moses. They really esteemed the angels. And, and so he's beginning to, to kind of help his argument because he knows what's coming. He's preparing them because there's going to be more out here. But he's just softening them up and saying, I want you to realize these things about him. And then he says, and Jesus is our great high priest. In fact, he is the great high priest. He is a priest over all other priests, more or less. Now, for you and I, we think, What's, well, that's, that's good news. What's, that's, what's the problem? You're going to see, though, that what is, what do you, how do you think that's impacting them? Their whole life is surrounded, has been based on, rooted in, foundation of, of the priestly system for years, hundreds and hundreds of years. That's what they know. That's what they, they've come to, to integrate into their life. It's what they've trusted. And now someone's coming along and said, high priest, a new high priest? Just to give you an idea. So they leave Egypt, 
They spend 40 years in the wilderness. They start. They become Israel. They become a nation in the, in the wilderness. Jacob comes along, right? They set up the tabernacle. They start the priestly system. There's the 12 tribes. And there's a tribe of Levi. That becomes the priestly line, right? That's all there, right? That's all there. And from that point until we're talking about right now, most historians believe and theologians believe there was probably 84 high priests that had office. And that was an office until death. You took the high priest role, it was until death. That's all they knew. And there was many other lower priests that, that helped the sacrificial offerings and all of those things and worked in the temple or worked in the tabernacle, depending on when it was in history. And he's telling them, he's getting ready to tell them that there's a priest that has come, a new priest, and he's going to be over all of that. And not only is he going to do away with that, he's going to replace that. How do you think those Hebrews are going to receive that? Is that going to be, oh, great, we've been waiting on this. How, I want you to feel the weight of that because I think sometimes when we read Scripture, we have the knowledge of these 2,000 years and we have the Bible and we have all of this. And I think it's really helpful to kind of put yourself back there and say, how must have they been dealing with this? This writer, this, this Christian writer is writing to them. who's come to know Christ. He's telling about this guy who's come and he's died and he's, he's the Messiah and he's going to replace the whole sacrificial system ultimately is what we're going to see here. And then he says, and you have to be careful because... If you don't believe this, there's consequences. There is no other way. And so we saw just in chapter 6 and other places that there's a consequence for unbelief. And so he, he relates to the, their descendants when they came out of Egypt and, and they weren't believers and they perished in the wilderness and they didn't enter the promised land. And he paints this whole picture about if you don't believe this, Jesus is greater than all these things. And if you, if you don't acknowledge that, if you don't believe that, if you don't accept that, there is no other way. So you should fall back from that, is what he says. But then in chapter 7, he comes back and he begins to talk about this essential role of this high priest. The essential role that this new high priest is going to play. And so, he tells them he's unlike any other high priest they've ever known. Last week, Seth dove in and started chapter 10 or chapter 7 verses 1 through 10 and, and kind of painted this picture there in the, the passage and, and it was great he used these three legs of the stool and the, the thing the prestige and, and these things hold up who Christ is and who really is Melchizedek but it's a picture of who Christ is going to be and who he's going to come and, and he really set the stage and, and but but one of the things that Seth was talking primarily about is this this priest this king this priest called Melchizedek and like, well, who is this guy? Like, like, he just comes on the scene. And I mean, most Christians know who Abraham is. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably know Abraham. You know who Abraham is. You know Matthew and Mark and Luke and Jacob and, and Joshua maybe. But Melchizedek, that's not a family, you know, nobody's naming their kid Melchizedek. You know? But I will tell you that Melchizedek plays a huge role in Scripture. And when I say that, I want you to think about this for a second. Melchizedek is talked about first in Genesis chapter 14. Now, why is that significant? The writer here is talking about this man, this king, who's a priest. In Genesis 14, he's referring to him, and he's going to 
attribute and compare him and, and really say he's very similar to, to this new high priest that's going to come. God put that few verses in Genesis chapter 14 for this moment. I just want you that to sink in for a second. God is an infinite wisdom. In fact, one of the lines there in the song, it says, we rest in the wisdom of God's plan. If you saw that, if you read that. God's wisdom, he plants this situation. This king who no one really knows, no one talks about, here in this text in Genesis. Why in Genesis? Because the Hebrews were studying the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They knew it. And so now this, this author can point to this guy to help them understand who, what God is doing in Christ. And he can say, look, God has been planning this all the time, guys. And it's in your text. I can show it to you. Because God knew that he was going to come at this time for this purpose. And he was going to come and replace the high priest system with his son. And he, he loves his people. And so he's making a way for them to be able to explain to the people so that they will believe. So what do we see about this guy named Melchizedek? First of all, I think I want to appreciate what Seth did last week and unpacking that. And some people said, I can't believe you gave him that passage. Like, that's a tough passage. I thought, yeah. But hey, it's the Word of God. We've got we to figure it out. We've got to do our best. And I think Seth did a great job. But I want to read to you a little bit about Melchizedek. Back in Genesis chapter 14, this is when he first kind of comes on the scene. And, and I'll explain this. And Seth explained it last week. But because he's just not somebody we know a lot about, I think it's good to have some repetition here. So in Genesis 14, what you've got is you've got Abram, who's not Abraham yet. He's been called by God, and, and he's, he's traveling as a nephew named Lot, right? And they, they go, and, and they kind of split, and Lot goes one way, and he goes another, and they, they have lands and cattle and all these things, and they are wealthy. And, and then what happens? There's a war in the plains between some, some cities, some kings that, that takes place, and Sodom and Gomorrah and other, other kings, and, and there's this war that takes place. And Lot is kind of involved in it because he lives in that area. And he gets taken captive in the war. And Abraham says, I've got to go get him. I've got to go save my, my I've got to go rescue my, my nephew. And so he goes and he goes to war with some of these kings. And he catches, you know, gets Lot back. And not only does he get Lot back, but he gets some people and some goods back that belong to Sodom and other things. And so he's coming back from, from winning and defeating these kings. And he has his... his you know, his nephew and all these other people and, and these goods. And that's where we pick it up kind of here in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of the Ketamar and the kings, so that was a king there. I'm butchering his name too, Brad, so it's okay. Um, and the kings who were with him, all right? So there was multiple kings that he just defeated, that Abraham went and defeated. And he comes back, and it says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. So Abraham's coming back. He's, he's victorious. He has his, his, his men with him. He's coming back. He has the spoils of war. He has the people that have been taken hostage. He's freed many of them. Some of them seemingly, it looks like, belong to Sodom and, and goods that were taken from Sodom. And, and also he has his, his nephew with him now. And so the king of Sodom goes out. And he wants to negotiate with Abram to kind of get some of the stuff that was taken from him, especially his people. 
Right? And we can read other places where it says he, he wants his people back. If you read this passage bigger than this. And so basically, Abram says, look, I don't want your people. You can have them back. You can have your goods. I don't, I don't want any of your stuff. I'm going to give it all back to you. I just need food for my men and what we've eaten, and that's all we're, we're going to take. And then it says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now here's another king that meets him in the valley. But Melchizedek, we don't see anywhere where the king of Salem was involved in any of the battle. That, that, that group was not seemingly involved. And so we don't know why Melchizedek comes, except for the fact that God had preordained this to be this way for this very moment so that he can refer back to it. And so Melchizedek comes and he, he offers bread and wine. And it says he was a priest of God Most High. So somehow Melchizedek, this man, you know, as, as Romans says, we can just look at, look at nature and we can see that God exists. We can see the Godhead. And, and here I think Melchizedek was just a, a godly man. He loved the Lord. He could look and he could see that there had to be a God. And he, he loved him and, and he, he praised him for all that, there, all that he was. And notice what he says. And he blessed him and said, who did he bless? He blessed Abraham or Abram. And this says, blessed be Abraham by God most high. So he's asking favor on, on Abraham. He says, you've been blessed, Abram. God has blessed you. The most high God has blessed you. You have won. He's praising him, praising God here for what he's done for Abram. And then he says, possessor of heaven and earth. Here he's talking about God. And blessed be God most high. He's giving glory to God. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So all the spoils, he gives this king, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Basically, he ties to him. And Seth kind of unpacked all of that last week and, and what that means. And, and it, it's showing this picture of, of who Melchizedek is and, and this, this priesthood, right? Because he goes on there, and, he, and Seth talked about this last week. He goes on and talks about how, how Melchizedek is a priest, and he's also a king. He's a high priest. And, and how no one else had that role, that dual role, except for Melchizedek. And now we're going to see it in Christ. It also talks about how Melchizedek, um, it says he doesn't have a, a father or a mother, um, there's no lineage to him. And I would say that when you look at the Greek, really, I think what it's saying there is it's not that, not that he really never had one. It's that it's not recorded. There's no, there's no history of when he was born, when he died. There's no lineage laid out in Scripture. Not that he was the pre-incarnate Christ. Some people believe that, that it was, I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't, I don't see that's the case. I think this really was a man. He really was a, a, a godly man. He, he, he really was used by God in many ways for this very purpose, I believe. And so here he is, and he comes out, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. What is this? What's the point of all of it? The point is, is that God is using this event, this, this little event, this little few verses in all of the Old Testament, right here in the book of Genesis, to be able to now share what he's doing in the new covenant when Christ comes to the Hebrew people specifically. See, this, this didn't have a lot of weight for the Gentiles. This didn't mean anything to the Gentiles. But God in his love and his mercy and his perfect plan, he's saying, I'm going to use this event. And thousands of years from now, I'm going to bring this to happen. And my writer's going to be able to explain it to them. And so that they're going to help see that Jesus is the new high priest. Think about planning ahead. I mean, that is planning ahead. I mean, 
Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years he's doing this little thing with this king so that his people will be able to see it and be able to relate to it and leave the sacrificial system and trust in the new high priest. And so there's a new priesthood that's needed. And so that really is your big idea this morning. God reveals a new and perfect priesthood. God reveals a new and perfect priesthood. He's beginning, he's revealed it here in the Old Testament that there's going to be this new priesthood. It's it's a shadow of what's coming. It's a shadow of what's coming. So let's dive in. We're going to have about seven things I want to kind of draw out of the passage today. Um, And we're going to move kind of quickly. We're not really going to be in any other passages throughout the Bible, maybe one or two, uh, because I think there's enough right here uh, to be able to dive into. Obviously, there's lots of things in Romans that we could draw in, but for, for time purposes, we're just going to stick to the text primarily. Let's pick it up. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there be or would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? That's the first thing that I think that we need to kind of wrestle with and kind of define here. Now, if perfection, right, we need to stop right there. What, what is he alluding to even in that statement? And if perfection, right, had been attainable. Perfection needs to be attainable is what he's saying. You need perfection, perfection. And it's not attainable. But you need it. Something, perfection somewhere is playing a role here. God is saying perfection is going to be needed. And it's, it's not attainable through this system, right? It's not attainable. This idea of perfection, I don't think we really have a good understanding of the term because we in our culture, like with so many other terms and, and terminology like awesome and, and, and um, just all of those type of words, we use words and, and we, we really don't understand the weight of the word. So we say something is perfect. Have you ever used that? Something is perfect. Is it really perfect? No. Nothing is really perfect, right? Even, even the best things, like all these decorations are incredible. Are they perfect? Not perfect. I don't even know. I don't even, we can't even define perfect because God is perfect. He's perfectly just, perfectly good. Perf- perfection is greater than we can understand it. For us, this is perfect. As far as we know, it's the best that we can do. It is perfect. But, but there's something greater that is perfect. And God defines that. He is that. And so when we use like, well, this, this is the best thing. I mean, you, you see it on TV. They always are saying, this is the best thing on the market. No, it's not the best thing. It's, it's, it's a thing and it's a good thing, but it's maybe not the best thing. And I understand why we use those words, but really when we're talking about God, and, and here in the text he says, now if perfection had been attainable. God is defining perfection. He's saying something has to be perfect, and we're going to need to figure out what that perfection looks like, what it is. Why does God want perfection? He says, for under it, people received the law, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. This is Jesus now talking in the Sermon on the Mount. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing the Jews here. 
his listeners, primarily the Jews, and they've been keeping the law. Now, I want you to understand that when we say keeping the law, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, when they say keeping the law, the outward law, you know, don't kill somebody, okay. Uh, Don't steal, okay. Don't commit adultery, okay. I got that, right? But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, yeah, but inwardly, you're still sinful. (laughs) You you think you're keeping the law outwardly, and you are. You're, You're not doing those things, but you're still lusting. You're still hating. You're still doing those things. And so inwardly, I just want to point something out. You're still sinning. Now, there's a big difference in those sins. Don't get me wrong. I mean, murder is much worse than hating someone. There's bigger consequences and all that sort of things. They're not equal. But God has just pointed out, Jesus has pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, that you're still sinful. You're still sinful. But in that time, they didn't see it that way. That's why the Sermon on the Mount was so critical. They looked at their outward thing as that was what sin was. And so when they sinned, if I committed adultery and I was convicted about it and repentful, I would take an animal and I would go have it killed for my sin. If I lusted, I didn't go kill one of my animals for that because I didn't view it as sin. I viewed it as something I thought. Jesus is turning that whole table upside down and says, no, that is sin, right? So you've got to understand the system that they're under. They don't understand that that is really sin that way. Now, Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, he raises the bar. He says, you therefore must be perfect even in your mind. Your heart, your desires must be perfect as your Father is perfect. They can't. That's the problem we can't fix. We can't, we can't do that. We can be perfectly outwardly, usually, mostly, but inwardly. I, as I've told you many times, when I was young and I, I was high school and, and college age, I mean, I had lots of very outward sinful things that, that people could see. And, and by God's grace, all those outward things have pretty much, by God's grace, I've been able to, to die to those things. And I thought, boy, when I got there, it's smooth sailing. Oh, my goodness. The inward heart thing is much harder. The thing that happens in my head, much harder. Not many days go by where there isn't some type of temptation, some type of, of thing that I'm thinking my heart is wanting. It's a, it's a jealousy. It's a, it's a, I don't know what, you know, it's, it's a selfishness. It's a pride thing. It, it's just constantly bombarding me. I, you know, as I, was, I said first service, I said, if we were having to sacrifice animals for every time I had a thought or you had a thought, there'd be no meat left in the world. Right? I mean, it would be one perpetual butcher shop. Right? And, and that's really what, what God is trying to, to tell us here, right? Is that this is, this is that pervasive in us. It's everywhere. And this old system of sacrificial animals is not going to cover it. You, it's a shadow of it. You're going to see that. It's a shadow of it, but it's not going to cover it. So what's the first thing that we see here in the text? Is that God requires perfection. He requires perfection. And, and many people say, well, that's so, that's so hard. How can he require? Because he can provide it. He can require it because he can provide it. We can't get there on our own. But God, through the work of his son and through this priesthood that he's going to develop and reveal, we can have that perfection. Not that something we can get, something he gets for us. There in the text that it says, if it had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it they received the law. What further need would there have been 
for another priest to come along. So what's he saying? He says, under the Levitical priesthood. So what's the Levitical priesthood? So from the time that, the, that Jacob had the 12 sons and the, that Israel started, the Levi was the son, and he, under that, God established the priesthood of the Levites. No one else was going to be a priest. If you were in the tribe of Judah, Dan, doesn't matter. You, nobody's going to be a priest. Only the tribe of Levi. The kings were going to come out of the tribe of Judah, and everybody else was going to come, the Levites were going to have all of the priests. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been sacrificing animals, the priests have been doing their things, these 84 high priests, or however many there was, were continuing to make atonement once a year for the sins of the people, making atonement on a regular basis for their own sins, for the sins of the nation. It's just this system of sacrificial system over and over and over. And if he's saying, look, if that was good enough, God never would have said something better is coming. If it would have been attainable to make something perfect, if that would have did it, then nothing else would need to come. That's all he's trying to say here. Had been attainable through the political system for the law was received under it. The law was received. And, And so what do we see here? The Levitical priesthood was a foreshadowing of Christ's perfection, but could not make anything perfect. Nothing is going to be made perfect through the sacrificial system. They trusted in it, they counted on it, it was so ingrained in who they were, but nothing was going to be made perfect. And and what really the author is saying is, look, we've been sacrificing animals all this time and we're still not perfect. We've still not purified ourselves, we've still not been reconciled back to God because of sin. In fact, what you see is, right, that because of that, they didn't come before the Lord. The priests went before the Lord. They didn't go before the Lord. In fact, if you go all the way back to... um, when they received the Ten Commandments in that whole period there, they're saying, Moses, you go. We ain't going. <laughs> Wait, we have a fear of him. Now, I think some more reverence and fear in our culture would be quite appropriate of the Lord. We should reverence him. and We should, we should have a, a, a holy fear of God. And so here we see that that this is where they're at. And, and, and this author now is telling them that the, now just see the weight of this. The Levitical priesthood, he's saying, is not sufficient. Everything that they have staked their whole life on, all of their traditions, their ancestors, their foundation, this guy now is saying, this one man who's come, and I'm telling you, he's going to replace all this. Because that system can't make anything perfect. And we need perfection because God requires it. Because on there, basically, it says, it had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? This idea of order, it's this way of being, this way of uh, succession or way of living it out in this process, this institution. And so there was this line of Aaron, which is all the priests, the 84 priests, the whole system, there was this line in what they did. And then there's this order of Melchizedek, this idea that you can be king and priest, like Seth talked about last week, and that he can come before God and he can go directly and, and, and there's this direct go before the Lord and, and he's saying there's going to be a new way. It's not that way anymore. And so what's the next thing we see here is, is a, a new perfect priesthood was needed in order to reconcile us back to God. They, they couldn't they couldn't come before the Lord. We, we talk about this frequently. At the crucifixion, what happens in the temple? The Holy of Holy, the curtain is ripped, signifying that now, as believers, we can come before the Lord. 
We don't, we don't go through a priest anymore. We don't do that. And now think about what that had to mean to them. They had never done that. They had never thought, I, I, I can't go before the Lord. I'm, even with sacrificial systems, I can't go before the Lord. That's only the priest. This guy is saying, no, the priest, that's an old system now. Now you can go before the Lord. The temple's been ripped. Jesus is our high priest, and we can come before the God, the Father, before Yahweh. You think that just resonated with them real quick and said, oh, great. No, I'm sure they were wrestling with this. And, and the author understands this. This is why he's beginning to, to build this argument and help them move into this place where they can see who Christ really is and that God has had this plan from the very beginning. It goes on in verse 12 through 14. It says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, because there's going to be this change, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, does, is the author here of Hebrews saying the law is going to be changed? No. The consequence of the law is changing because the priesthood is changing. No longer is it going to be the sacrificial system and the priests of Levi. It's going to be Jesus as the high priest. And because the, the priesthood is changing, the implication and the penalty of the law is changing. Right? He goes on there and he says, for the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. So he's saying, we're speaking about Jesus, and he belongs to another tribe. He doesn't belong to the tribe of Levi. From which no one has ser ever served at the altar. So what, what's the author saying? He's, he's, he's saying, look, none of the, the people of Judah, none of the tribe of Judah have ever served or made a sacrificial offering at the altar in the temple. No one except for the tribe of Levi. So he's, he's, he's showing them that Jesus is different. He's not of that tribe. No one ever has done this. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. We'd be the tribe of Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses never or said nothing about priests. So I think what the author is doing, he's going back to what they know again. He's saying, look, don't take my word for it. Moses never talked about it either. God is doing something. Moses never addressed it. So I just want you to be clear, this is going to be something new, right? Moses was not aware of it either. So what do we see here? The new perfect priesthood replaced the imperfect priesthood. There's a new priesthood that God, here in the text, is saying, the author is writing and saying, this new priesthood is going to replace an imperfect priesthood. Once again, how do you think the Hebrews are responding to this? Their whole culture, everything about what, how they lived and what they did was based in this sacrificial system. And the author here is writing and saying, yeah, there's a guy coming. He's replacing all of that because it was imperfect. He's going to tear it all down because it wasn't perfect. You can see why they're having trouble stepping in believing. He goes on there in verse 15, it says, this has become even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. What's he saying there? He says, look, Jesus has become a high priest not because he's of the tribe of Levi, not because it's been some legal requirement based on who he is, his genealogy, and his, his descendant from Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. This idea that he's, he's just saying this, this picture of Melchizedek because he doesn't have any, in Scripture, he doesn't have any end. There's no death reported. That doesn't mean he didn't die. It just means this, this is a picture of eternity, this picture of a, a kingdom that never ends. And what he's saying here is Jesus has this, but he has it based on an indestructible life. What does that mean? It means that he, he, he will never die. He never, why doesn't he die? Well, because he's sinless. We're going to see that here in a second. He's sinless. He doesn't deserve to die. There's no penalty for, for him, right? There's no problem for him. We talked about our problem. We have sin, and we can't, we're, we can't reconcile. We're dead spiritually, and God has to make us alive. He doesn't have that problem. He is alive. He is God in the flesh. And so what's the next thing we see here is the foundation of the new perfect priesthood is built on Jesus' indestructible life. All of this is built on the foundation that Christ was sinless and never died. He was killed, but he rose from the dead. He never ultimately dies. Once again, he's painting this comparison because all of the high priests died. I find it interesting that the people who want Jesus killed are the other high priests. <laughs> you ever think about that? Those high priests don't want him. He's the new perfect high priest. little jealousy there? You know, we, we say we want to know the truth about things. So sometimes I will sit down with some people and I'll say, hey, tell me, you know, tell me how the message was. Tell me how this happened or, you know, how, how this came across. And, and I really, I think in my heart, want to know what they think until they tell me what they think. And then I bristle sometimes because even though I'm asking, it's hard to hear the truth sometimes. And so you can see what's probably happening here with, with these guys, that they want to know what the Scripture has to say. But as this author begins to kind of really pull all this out and reveal all this information, it's, it's hard. The foundation of the new priesthood is built on Jesus' indestructible life. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. It goes on and says, For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Okay, so what's he saying there? He said, when Christ comes as this new high priest, the law, right, this old system, the former commandments, is going to be set aside. Not done away with, but it's going to be set aside. We still want to obey the law. We're still required to obey the law. We're still asked to obey the law. But it's, it, doesn't, it can't make us perfect, so it's going to be set aside. It's not the standard anymore. It's not the standard. The standard is our relationship with Christ. Because the law is powerless. It is weak. I could take you many places in Romans that says, why was the law given? To make us perfect? No. The law was given to show us our sin. The law was given to show us that we are sinful. The law was given so that we could see how sinful we are. Why is that so important? Because when I realize, when you realize, when the Hebrews realize that they have a problem that they can't fix and they know they're sinners, they're going to look for the Savior. They're going to look for the solution, and that solution is going to bring glory to God. I would argue that 
the more you, the closer you get with Christ, the more you realize that you're a sinner. And you think, and that can be hard because we live in a culture where we want to be good and, and we, we, we rely on our, our merit to be good. And yet I'm telling you that when the closer you get to Christ, the more you see yourself as a sinner. But that's exactly what the Lord is, is showing us because he's saying, look, when you realize that grace and what I've done for you is going to be so much sweeter. You're, gonna, you're just going to be so overwhelmed by the grace that I give you and the love that I give you through the sacrifice of my son if you understand the depths of your sin. And so here, he's just sharing that with them. He sets it aside because it is, cannot do what, it's, what they want it to do. It can't make them perfect. But goes on and says, but on the other hand, there's a better hope, Right? There's a better hope introduced through which we draw near to God. Once again, it goes back to the temple there, right? There's a hope that Christ has made it possible that we can draw near to the Father. We can do that. We can draw near to the Father because of Christ. I'm even trying to get in my own prayer life to, to be able to, because it's important when we pray to, I would argue to be theologically correct when we talk to the Lord, so to speak. A lot of times at the end of my prayer, we will say, you know, in Christ's name, you know, we ask all these things in Christ's name. That's good. But I would encourage you to begin to think about it the other way as well. When we come into the presence of the Lord, many times now I will say, Father, thank you that you've allowed me into your presence because of the death and resurrection of your son. I'm here because Christ has tore the veil, not because anything I've done but because you have made this opportunity for me to be before you. It gives honor immediately when I come before the presence of the Lord. And it allows us to draw near. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, here in a few weeks we'll cover. It says, for, for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So see, he's going he's to continue to build this argument out here that Christ is the, the sole sacrifice. The, the, the author here is saying, look, by a single sacrifice, by Christ alone, his death, he's going to make perfect. He's going to do what we can't do. He's going to do something that we can't do, fix the problem that we can't fix, that we are powerless to fix. He's going to do it by a single sacrifice for all time. Not going to need another one next day of atonement. Not next time you sin. For all time, he's taken care of it. He's perfected it perfectly by his death and resurrection and by his sinless life. But then as it says, for those who are being sanctified. <laughs> you say, well, I thought he just perfected me. Why am I being sanctified? Being sanctified means he's continuing to, to make me into his image. He's continuing to, to take off the rough edges and, and help me die to my sin and all those things. Because what God comes in and says is, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to perfect it in Christ. You're still going to be working for sanctification, but I've perfected you in Christ. You've not been totally clean until glorification. And so what I tell people all the time, and this is really the rub for the Christian, it is the tension of the Christian life. I've told two people this week, we rest in the grace of God. So if, if you have a relationship with God today, you should rest in that. 
Your hope is in that. You should rest in that. You don't have to fight to have him love you. You don't have to do things so he will love you. You just rest in the grace of God. He's already demonstrated his power, his love to you. He's died for you. He's, he's worked in your life. He's given you the Holy Spirit. You can rest there. But here's the rub. You should continue to strive for holiness. And see, the problem is, is that many of us in the Christian world, we, we just stop right there and we rest. That is not the plan. The plan is that we continue to strive for holiness. In fact, I would argue that because he has sanctified us or because he has, has made us holy, he's made us right, he's made us perfective, we should all the more want to strive for holiness. But yet we can't, we can't trust in our striving. We can't say, well, if I strive hard enough, then I'll achieve something. No, we rest in the work of Christ. Because as soon as we start to say, I can achieve this, I can do this, we've just taken glory away from God. And we, we, we're trying to say we can do something that we can't do. And this is the rub. I, I, I don't want you to strive and end up in a works-based system, but I also do want you to sit here and rest in grace and say, well, I don't have to do anything because God has saved me. Because I would argue that maybe then you really haven't been born again. Because we should want to conform to the image of the Son. We should be will, willing to give our life away for his glory. For by a single sacrifice, he, off, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is for those of us still in it. He has done something and, say, and it's made us perfect, but we are still working it out in our life. So what do we see here? The perfect priesthood of Jesus allows us to be reconciled with God. The perfect priesthood of Jesus allows us to be reconciled to God. It gives us access. All right, verses 20 and 21, we'll wrap it up here. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So what's he saying? He says, all these other priests of Levi's, God did not make an oath about them. He did not, he did not promise anything. He did not, didn't make an oath. Says, but it goes on there. It says, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That comes from Psalm 110. Notice, once again, the, the, just the, the fullness of Scripture and the, 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 the way that God has planned things. Here in Psalms, God is referenced that Jesus is going to come and take over and he's going to be the great high priest. He will be the high priest forever. And once again, he's able, the author here, is able to take them back to their, their scriptures, back to the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and be able to point to them and say, see, he's right here. Not only is it referenced here in Genesis, in, in the Torah, but now he's, he's here in, in Psalms, and it's, God is telling us that this is the way it's going to be. He's been building his argument over and over and over because he's getting to the place that says, but Jesus is going to come and, and totally dismantle all of this. It's imperfect, and God is going to come and make it perfect. And so you need to see it so that you will let go of it because when we go right back to 6, what was their problem? They were not wanting to let go of it. And if they didn't let go of it, just like they wouldn't let go of, of Egypt when they came out of the wilderness, they wanted to go back and they wanted to hold on to all of those things and they would perish. And that was the whole point. And so the author knows that that's going to be their challenge. And so he's referencing the Old Testament so they can see it in their own scripture that this is what God has planned from the very beginning. And so what do we see here? The new perfect priesthood has been sworn by God. It's been promised. It's been sworn. God has, has made an oath about it. 
I said this a few weeks ago when we were talking about this earlier, when he made the oath to Abraham and he promised to give him the land and, and to give him inheritance. I just got to say again, can, can you, do you grasp what, what God is doing here? The God of heaven and earth, the eternal God of all things, the giver of life, who is the creator, the only creator, is making a promise and an oath to his creation. I get it that we should make an oath to him. I agree that we should do those things. But why does he need to do that to us? What, a, what an act of love and demonstration of his faithfulness and of his promise that he would make an oath to his sinful creation. He promises it. Not only he's, is he doing it from time began and he's, he's working all of these details out, but now he's promising to them. He says, look, Jesus is going to be the one and I promise it. I'm, I'm going to give you my word. And so this morning, if you're here and, and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, and, and you're, you're searching, I just, I just want you to see what God is telling you. One, he has sent his only son to die for you. I don't know what more we would want. You have a problem you can't fix, and he has come and said, I can fix it. And I promise you, I will swear that if you give your life to Christ, if you trust in me, I will make you perfect. I will swear, the God of the universe is swearing that. I will do it. I'm faithful. You can trust me. And it says, and will not change his mind. He will not change his mind. So what's the last verse here, 22? This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So not only does God swear by his word and swear what he's going to do, he gives the life of his son as a guarantee. Jesus is the guarantor. Many of you may not know this, but back in 2005 when we built this building, um, we, we bought the land with cash. It was about $100,000, and, and we looked at building the building, which was obviously only about 12,000 square feet. It was much smaller than it is now, and... and um, we went to the bank and said, we need $700,000. I can't tell you how many banks looked at us and said, well, good for you. <laughs> you know, like, we're not giving you any money. You have, what do you have, no collateral? You know, what, you, there's, there's a bean field. <laughs> we, we, how, uh, we don't want to own a church. We don't want, definitely don't want to foreclose on a church, right? That's not a good business deal when you have to foreclose on a church. Even our association, our, our group of Southern Baptists, and we have loan, they wanted like 60% of us, 60% of the money available, they'd loan us 40%. We had nothing almost. And so finally, by God's grace and his mercy, there was a godly man here in town who worked at one of the banks as a president, or I'm not sure what his position was, but he was very high up. And he struck a deal with two banks, and they said, look, we believe in what God is doing here, and we believe in what you guys are doing, and we're going to loan you the money. But we want to guarantee we need five or six people in your church to give us their financial statements of what assets they have because if it fails, we're going after that money so we get our money back. And so by God's grace, we had six people that put their name on the line and put their finances on the line and said, we will surrender everything we have if the church fails to pay for the debt because they believed in what God was doing here. And yet, you know, we're imperfect. I could have spent all that money and went bankrupt before the church went bankrupt, right? I mean, there was no guarantee that I wasn't going to blow all my money when, the, you know, they may have come to me and said, hey, Raleigh, we're, I've already spent it all. God has put his son in line saying, you know, I'm faithful. 
He's, he's the guarantor of this. His life, his glory is all on the line. You can trust it. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So what's the last point we see? The perfect priesthood of Jesus. Jesus' sinless life and resurrection guarantee salvation for those who believe. The resurrection guarantees eternal life. He came back from the dead. It's a, it, it, his sinless life allowed him not to stay dead. He had no penalty, he had no debt to pay. It's a guarantee for us that if we will be found in Christ, we too will have eternal life. We too will be resurrected from the dead. It's this trusting in what God has done through this perfect priesthood. And so I just want to leave you with a question and then I'll give you a takeaway. Seth kind of touched on this really well last week. What priesthood are you living under? Are you living under the, the, the law priesthood? Are you raising your children to, to think about the law priesthood? Love is always contingent upon them doing well. How we manage businesses and all the things that we do with our employees, is it, is it always a law-based system? Is, is that where we're finding our trust? Is that where we're, we're putting our hope and our trust? That if I can just be good, it's, it's all over the world. Every, in fact, I would argue that, that every other worldview at some level that, that has a God is, is always about a law-based system. It's them achieving something. They think that if they do something long enough, well enough, even karma, I'm going to get there at some point because I'm going to accomplish something even if it takes me 10 lifetimes to do it. But yet, we have to admit that we can't, we are powerless to do what, to solve this problem of sin. And when we say that, we are, we are acknowledging the need for a perfect priesthood found only in Christ. So what priesthood are you living under? Are you resting in the priesthood of Christ? Are you resting in the, the work of the Lord the plan from Genesis all the way to Revelation? Can you see it there in, in the Melchizedek in this picture that God placed there for this very moment when he talks about it in Psalms 110 and we can see it here now and we're here today thousands of years later and we can see it all unfolding? Are you resting in those truths? And so what's the takeaway then? The only way to be reconciled back to God is through the perfect priesthood of Jesus. That's it. There's the only way. I'll validate that with one other scripture in the Gospel of John. What does Jesus tell them? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the perfect priest. No other way, no other sacrifices, no other obedience. My work, my resurrection, my sinless life, only way to the Father, only way to eternity. So, this morning, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I just want to challenge you with that. I want you to, this is what God has done. This is what he has swore that he would do. He is faithful. He's given his son. And this is what the writer was talking about in 6. If you reject that, there is no other sacrifice. 
There is no other thing that God is going to do. So if you reject that, there's no hope. In fact, your heart, the author really is saying your heart is probably so hard you, you may never come to repentance. I pray that is not the case. I pray that today you will make, you will see that God will work in your heart and he will make you a new creation. He will cause you to be born again. It is God's work in you. And if you say, well, I don't know how to do that, you can't do it. You can, you can get on your knees and you can sit in your chair and you can ask God to save you. Say, Lord, I see who you are. I acknowledge who you are. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I cannot fix my problem. Will you save me? That's where we stand. That's where our hope is at. The work of the high priest, when we come and we acknowledge that, we trust the high priest, comes into our life, transforms us, and makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you that you have made it possible that we can enter into your presence behind the curtain where a place where they weren't allowed to go, Father because of their sin. But Father, you have made us perfect in Christ. You have made us righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because of the righteousness of your Son. And so, Father, we stand here as believers, humbly indebted to you for all that you've done. You sustain our life. You take care of our sin, you perfect us, and then you work to sanctify us. Father, we praise you, and I pray that if there is someone here today that does not know you, Father, that you will work in their hearts, you will make them a new creation in Christ Jesus. You will cause them to be born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus. And Father, that that will bring new life and ultimately will bring you glory, because that's where the trust is in the work of your son. Lord, I pray that you will just be with us today as we leave this place, as this week we want to share these truths with the students, with the children here in our church. Father, help us to be good stewards of your word. Help us to rightly divide it with the kids. And may you receive the glory and the honor that you alone are worthy of as we live out these next few days with our children and the children of our community. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.